city limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. Okay, and it's City Limits. It's the second Wednesday of the month. That means it's the day we look at energy and related issues. And today we're going to be talking in the second half of the program to um, Richie Mertzian, who's the Climate and Energy Director with the Institute of the Australia Institute. I almost said the Institute of it's Public Institute. Affairs. Uh, <laughs> what? The opposite. <laughs> the Australia Institute is a regarded, it's always quoted as a left wing think tank, and sometimes it is too. Um, and Richie's going to talk to us about the report they, they issued yesterday, which got some publicity yesterday. It was launched by Zali Stegall, actually, yesterday, well, well, well. Who, who ran on that issue. Yeah, exactly. She also has some few conservative sides of her, but um, she yeah. came out in that one okay. Yeah. Um, I'm Kevin Healy, by the way, and um, the other person talking over there is Megan Kimber. Meg. Good morning. And you've, you've teed up the other interview and, in fact, done it. You pre-recorded it. Um, That's right, because yeah. um, I spoke with Joseph Wani, who's an energy consultant and is... Um, but I had to grab him before he had to go overseas to Geneva to start his work with the UNHCR about um, energy alternatives in refugee camps. So uh, that's uh, yeah, it was really interesting to talk with him. So that'll just be a little uh, pre-record a little bit later in the show. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, whatever time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever <laughs> time we decide. It's our show. We can do whatever we want. We can we run this show here. That's right. <laughs> Somehow they let us. <laughs> and that's why the audience thinks, well, why bother <laughs> with that lot? Anyway, oh, speaking of audience, uh, look, I do want to, uh, last week I should have said it, um, I want to thank um, Terry Bosley for the card he sent. Um, it was a card thanking me for something, I said, stuff I said on the week that was about Chris Gaffney, the week that Chris died. Oh, and um, yeah. he sent me a very nice card because he worked with Chris at the... Um, Labor College, so uh, oh, the microphone with the teapot. Um, so thank you, Terry, and, and also for the other things you do send us periodically, we appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. Um, the other one yesterday, I think it's worth a bit of self congratulations, not personally, but for the st- studio here, oh, yeah. because yesterday's coverage of the um, Jumbarung March in yeah. the city, and um, unfortunately, I, I record the week that was mid morning on Tuesdays, and I forgot to rearrange that, so oh, I yeah. didn't get there. But I heard it all on radio, and uh, yeah. it was an excellent coverage. And congratulations to all the people here involved in it. Yeah, yeah. it's good, good work. Actually, the um, did you go to the rally? No, I didn't. I couldn't. Tuesday's my working day, ah. but um, uh, there's been a First Nations Literary Festival on as well and sort of at the same time as the Melbourne Writers' Fest. I don't know how involved they are. Like there was a bit of collaboration, but um, I've been to a few of those events and really uh, found it informative and, and moving and um, interesting. Um, so, yeah, listening to Aboriginal voices in, in every way that we can is is just not only important, but also a privilege, yeah. really, that we have That's being right, on yeah. Aboriginal land. And yeah. some marvellous speeches yesterday, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kevin, did you steal my age? 
I brought in an age newspaper. I picked it up to read while you were out of the studio a minute ago. Yeah, sorry, here you are. Thank you very much. <laughs> I actually picked it up to see if there was any coverage of the rally. But, uh, oh, well. Uh, I got to page three and any didn't Any surprises find there? Yeah, no, not no. really. Um, <laughs> oh dear, now I feel terrible. I've been exposed as a thief on air. <laughs> Anyway. Damn it. <laughs> Thought I'd get away with that one too. Um, anyway, um, speaking of uh, yesterday's rally, they also, and I think it was wonderful of them, they also acknowledged the problems going on in uh, West Papua. And um, yeah. they had a chant, um, West you know, Freedom Medica, which is the freedom word in, in, in the West Papuan language. Yeah. Um, and in fact, last night on going on home time, uh, Jan Barthon interviewed a former employee here, Ronnie Kareni, about it. Who, of course, is West Papuan, and yeah. he used to come on. We used to drag him in here occasionally to talk yeah. about the issue when he was working here. Um, but also, just just on that, um, four Australians were being deported this week from West Papua for. Um, for, for waving the West Papuan flag and for actually marching. And one of their crimes is they were riding bicycles alongside the uh, the protesters. So so obviously riding bicycles alongside protesters um, is, a, is a crime in West Papua. It's a crime according to the Indonesian army anyway. Well, there's but, been um, a bit it's pretty of awful up there what's going on, of course. So, we know. Something's happened with a bit more um, international awareness of it somehow. Yes, like, yes. Why is that? Uh, and they've been accepted into a couple of the Pacific forums where the Indonesia's opposed it, but they've been accepted, and hopefully mm. they'll get you know they'll move on. But it's another classic example of um, similar to Timor, where um, you yeah. know, the struggle goes on, and the the people put up an incredibly gutsy fight. Yes, and um, the Australian government, you know, sort of sets itself up as a um, peaceful, you know, collaborative. You know, that this, yeah, yeah. The, this this whole story about Australia and the way that it was founded. And, um, you know, that Tony Birch did a keynote address at the First Nations Literary Fest and um, really, you know, as like brought out examples from the archive and from the colonial record that, that completely um, contradicts that. And we can see that mm. in West Papua as well. Yeah. And, um, and, and in all of the testimonies of... Aboriginal peoples and Papuan peoples. Yep. So, um, you know, their own yeah. records don't Tragic, really... Tragic, but... Yeah. And, of course, our role in Timor was just dreadful from Whitlam on um, through Walcott, the, the ambassador, and then Gareth Evans, and who played a dreadful, dreadful role, and even yeah. up to Alexander Downer in in uh, eavesdropping on the cabinet room up there, of course, on behalf of an Australian oil company. Mm. In fact, Gareth Evans always, you know, recognised Indonesia's occupancy and... and colonialism with the word de jure, de jure recognition. And on the week that was, our phrase we used many times, very bad joke, but we used it time and time again, Gareth saying, de jure in de crown is the oil in the ocean, <laughs> um, which is what it was really all about. Yeah. Um, and anyway. also the, the, the um, you can see it with the offshore detention as well and how that impacts on the sovereignty of, of nations like yes. Nauru. Manus yeah. Nauru. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, here's some good news. Right. <laughs> really? <laughs> good news. I meant to read this last week with John John McPherson, who would have appreciated this much more, I think, than you would, oh, me. Okay. but you might appreciate it. Give it a go. It says the occasional glass of red wine could be linked to better, better gut health, scientists at King's College London have found. And it goes on to say that um, the phenomenon is better for, you know, you can, uh, benefits for the heart 
but it's also, um, while we have long known of the unexplained benefits of red wine on heart health, this study shows that moderate red wine consumption is associated with greater diversity in a healthier gut microbiota that partly explains its long-debated beneficial effects on health, Dr Carolyn Leroy, first author of the findings, said. So that's good well, news. Well, yeah, I just do need to <laughs> say that the main word there is moderate. Yeah, that's yeah. The, <laughs> defini- the definition of moderate does come into it. <laughs> in fact, I raised it with John before we got into the studio last week, and uh, we both pointed out that the, the definition definition of an of a standard glass is about one drop as far as we're concerned <laughs> so, <laughs> so it does need a bit of definition that's right but it's it's encouraging isn't it yeah. i'm going out to lunch today to test it all right um let me know how you go. Yes. Now, the Herald Sun continues its relentless attack on, um, not attack on, but um, its, its explanation of who they are. The, the, the welfare recipients um, blamed their drinking or drug taking for failing to look for work or attend appointments more than 5,000 times during the past year. And it goes on about how terrible that is. And they use drugs and alcohol to get out of looking for work or going through work things they're supposed to go through and all the rigmarole you're put through Mm. by that mob. Mm. But the headline is another classic headline for the Herald Sun, Drugs and Excuse for Bludgers. Oh, my gosh. So, again, it's just assumed that if you're on welfare, you're a bludger. Did you see on the front page of The Age that they're saying about the cashless welfare card not working? Surprise. No, go on. Can't believe that. Uh, Well, there's a drug and alcohol treatment centre in South Australia and um, the chief executive has said that they haven't seen a decrease whatsoever in people coming to the centre who, um, you know, are going there for support for their drug and alcohol addictions. Um, Yes, so the card quarantines 80% of unemployment and other welfare payments to stop them being spent on alcohol, drugs or gambling. I mean, the whole thing is so... Yeah, and the drug tests, etc. Paternalistic, yeah. Everyone who's an expert in these things opposes what the government wants to do in all this sort of Absolutely. thing. Absolutely, yeah, and, and it doesn't work. No, But it's, no. it's more um, interfering in the lives of, of, of people, you know, and mm. not, not giving people options that can actually help them, but things that hinder them from, from getting help. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Now, this is another one that comes as a hell of a surprise, given that you know people just love going to work and love you know love the love the boss and love being exploited by capitalism <laughs> they 've discovered another well, one of they need studies on these things it 's official retirees are happier than their employed counterparts <laughs> <laughs> of course they are they 've going to go to work. <laughs> <laughs> as long as they've got enough superannuation. Well, that's that's yeah. the coming. I mean, they've got a, yeah, that's right. But nonetheless, I mean, yeah. not having to get up every morning and head off for the boss by <laughs> nine o'clock and be attacked if you're there at one minute past nine or something. Um, yeah. yeah. So the Deakin University research come up with that one, but I could have told them that without the re- without the cost. Right. Well, speaking <clears> of <throat> research that tells you things that everybody would know <clears throat> if they just talk to people. Um, can't see who's done this study, but the age has got it on their front page that racism is real. Oh, really? Yeah, that's been proven by a study as well. <laughs> Gee, yeah. Yeah. you wouldn't have understood that if you listened to those speeches yesterday. They were oh, saying exactly. how, how wonderful we are. You know, what a great collaborative society we live in here in Australia. With no, well, in fact, Matthias Cormann uh, came out and uh, said, as we said last week, that there's no inequality in Australia. And 
That's where Labor lost the election because they tried to claim there was inequality. Quality. Everyone saw through that. Yeah, and I'm sure all those Indigenous people there yesterday would absolutely. have realised there's absolutely they no know. inequality. Exactly. None, whatever. Yeah. A bit of inequality as far as trees are concerned, yeah. but... A little um, bit of, yeah, double standards. Oh, come on. <laughs> Where'd that come from? I don't know. Oh, dear me. Getting, you're getting more cynical, I think. I know. I think um, it's this show. Oh, it can't be this show because we, <laughs> there's no cynicism here. Let me tell you, I'm going to pour a little bit more of this very weak tea. I, for, I forgot to reef socket, so there's very little tea in here today. It's mostly water. Do you want a bit more of this water? No, thank no, you. No, okay. I'll be fair enough. Don't blame you. Um... The um, we could have told them this too, but it, um, after some years of attempting it, um, the bike rentals thing around the city, the bikes, oh, yeah. the blue bike scare scheme, that everyone left has everywhere. been scrapped. Yeah. Oh. Now the other one, they were the ones that we left everywhere. The ones with the people just left everywhere. Okay. But these ones, people put in, they they got, oh, they got yeah. spots and they go there. Yeah. So these have been okay, except from the outset, people pointed out the biggest problem is the helmet issue. Because yes. you've got to have a helmet and people aren't going to go to the city carrying a helmet to hire a bike. No. So a lot of it was to do with that. You could pay $5 or something and get a helmet. but Yeah, you but, could buy um, them at the 7-Elevens and things. But nonetheless, it, um, that, was, that was one of the big barriers. Uh, plus, of course, they make the point that since the, uh, since the free tram service came in mm. around the city, mm. um, that... Um, People tend to use that now rather than go on a bike and ride around the city. So Gosh, could, that's could you imagine a uh, tourist yeah. riding a bike in the CBD? Like that would be absolute yeah. terror for them. I mean, I'm yes. I'm scared any time <clears throat> I'm riding in the in the city, like in the center center of the city. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, that's right. Or a tourist would be hopeless because yeah. many tourists also come from countries where you're on the other side of the road. I mean, yeah. I know if you're in a country where they they go the other way, uh-huh. so to speak. It's um, very confusing. Left hand drive. Yeah. You generally, I find you generally step out and look the other way mm. when you when you're a pedestrian, yeah. and the traffic is actually coming behind you and yeah. about to row you down. That's yeah. that's the big problem. Yeah. Anyway, that's uh, that's a by the by. Oh, um, it's a bit just, of a shame because it is you know good for people to get around by bike. It is, and it, yeah. you know they but they needed to overcome that that problem, and I don't know how. You, I suppose the only way to overcome it would say well. It's not compulsory to have a helmet on those bikes, but I think it should be compulsory because I think wearing a helmet is so important on a bike. So, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, now, the Herald Sun's been running. No, even if I'm as hard to believe, but the Herald Sun's been running a whole series of um, of shots of, of young women uh, in fashions, telling us what they're wearing. It's all to do with fashion week, but also now leading up to this racing spring carnival. You always talk about this, Gavin. Yeah. I think you love fashion. I think you're how, secretly well, a fashionista. They, how they're going to, um, how they love, and all these people have, haven't been in the races for years, say, I just love it. I'm looking forward because you can wear your best clothes and look wonderful and um, the, uh, and all the, the wonderful birdcage um and the birdcage uh, capitalist uh, badoos out there where they can go for free and it's all lovely, lovely, lovely and what they're going to eat and all that. Mm. Um, so that, and it's every, almost every day there's a story pushing that. But this one I really loved. This has got a young woman eating something. Um, there's a photo over there. there oh, eating yep, something. Yeah, okay. okay. 
A healthy diet is no trial for Heinrich. Trial by Kyle Starr. I've never heard of trial by Kyle. Yet, but, uh, <laughs> no, anyway, I don't know what that is. Anna Heinrich, I've never heard of either, but until this came out, says she doesn't believe in dieting. I don't think you ever need to diet, Heinrich, a lawyer, said. You have got to watch what you put in your body and be mindful of it. I am not going to eat whatever I want when I, I'm... I'm not going to eat whenever I, when I want, when I want. I eat to fuel my body and to treat, to eat as many uh, nutritious things as I can, but I never will diet. Heinrich is married to Tim Robards, who she met while competing on The Bachelor. Robards now stars on Neighbours. This is exciting, isn't it? <laughs> but then you see the purpose of the story. The last paragraph said she has been named as an ambassador for the latest gelato range for a particular ice cream. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, just so full of interesting and exciting uh, pieces of, of information there. Which bit Thank of that you for sharing. Which yeah. bit of that isn't a free, uh, <laughs> an free ad? It's an ad for everything. It's an ad for everything you can think of. Anyway. Anyway, that's, uh, that's that. Hey, uh, um, speaking of bicycles, Kevin. Yes. There is a, um, a neighbourly ride um, oh, uh, starting from the Brunswick Cycling Club this Sunday at 9am. Mm. I don't know Did you give an address for the Brunswick Cycling Club, which would help a bit? <laughs> no. <laughs> Good. Well, the thing is that unlike you, a lot of people have smartphones and the internet and things like that. They just Google it. But, um, yeah, what is an opening? Uh, Bring your family and friends for a community barbecue to celebrate the opening of Neighbourly Rides a new location. Oh, it says Harrison Street, Brunswick East. Harrison Street, Brunswick East. Oh, the Brunswick Cycling Club Velodrome. Oh, yes. Is that just near Ceres? Yes, down by the Merry Creek. That's I presume that's the one they're talking about, yeah. Right. The ride starts at 10 a.m. It's a 40-minute ride. And all ages and ride levels are welcome. That sounds really nice. Right. Well, that covers me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. You ride your bike a lot. And uh, I old think and that's, slow. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go into the old and slow category. <laughs> Not that slow, though, necessarily. Um, yeah. Now, this, this headline, in a, again, a Herald Sun editorial the other day, um, over the years... In fact, there was some. We better go to the interview too. But the, yeah. over the years, the the Herald Sun, in fact, the the Wharfies walked that when it was still the Herald and the Sun separately on um, uh, yeah. Flinders Street. Uh, the Wharfies marched there on several occasions and protested about the way Murdoch attacked Wharfies and Wharfies' conditions, etc., etc., at a time when it was even less safe than now, when there were so many injuries, etc. But instead of standing up for the safety of the workers, it attacked them over everything, including on behalf of the bosses down there on the wharves. And yet, the other day it had an editorial headline, Cost of Wharf Safety Failure. Now, one might think that's about the cost of the failure to injuries to workers. Mm. But no, it's about the wharf itself, that wharf that began to collapse. They had to get people off. And it's complaining that the government's let down the people who work there and the people, the companies that operate mm. on that wharf because they haven't kept it in proper condition, et cetera, et cetera. Interesting. So once again, they're, they're saying that like... You know, when when things go wrong, it becomes the public responsibility, like cladding with their saying that the government's putting up millions yeah. and millions and they're saying it could cost the government millions and millions here um, to fix up this thing. But they're concerned about 
the the companies that are operating on the wharf, but nothing to do with the workers at all. Yeah. Um, so you'd be pleased to hear that. Good to um, hear. Yeah, that's yeah. right, that's right. And just as uh, we might mention more of this later on, but mm. uh, nearly 50 young workers a week are being seriously injured on the job. Some of them just aged 15, new figures reveal from WorkSafe. I mean, right. we're going, we've been going to the interview, but that's that's a pretty serious situation. Yep. Okay, what's, um, well, you can introduce this because you uh, you did it. Right, this is Joseph Wani, um, an energy um, consultant who's working for the UNHCR, and I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago before he went to Geneva. So, Joseph, you're working with a project with the UNHCR, um, yep. looking at energy needs in uh, for for people seeking asylum, for people living in refugee camps. Can you tell me more about the project? Yeah, the, the project is basically looking at uh, addressing the energy needs in uh, refugee camps. Mm. And uh, at the moment, the main ones which have been identified are uh, energy for cooking and uh, energy for for lighting. Right. The, the main needs which we need to, to address. So that's what I will mainly be focusing on for a start. Yep. And why are they important? Uh, yeah, I think I'm sure mainly, especially if we start with cooking, that mm. uh, is the issue of, I mean, people need to eat. The, the, yeah. the basic human right, and you cannot do without without eating. So without a proper solution, then it means that there is going to be a lot of uh, environmental degradation because the obvious option will be to get... Uh, uh, fuel wood, mm. which will which will involve cutting down trees within those uh, sites where the refugee camps are. Yeah, right. And, and yeah, you know, lighting. They, there's been a lot of um, sex and gender-based violence because of uh, mm. darkness in in refugee camps. So it's something on uh, uh, on high note, which uh, the the UNHCR feels that it needs to be urgently addressed by making sure that we don't have dark spots which mm. will put mainly girls and women mm. at risk. At risk, yeah. yeah. So that's a very important one, obviously. And and at the moment, what what are the ideas for solutions in terms of different energy uh, resources that people can use? Um, yeah, that's that's that, that's 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 really my main role is right. to identify the ideal. Uh, and uh, maybe area-specific uh, solutions. So, mm. and uh, the drive at the moment is to maximize the use of uh, renewable energy options for, mm. for obvious reasons. They are environmentally friendly. They are clean and uh, sustainable. I mean, compared to the conventional sources, the, yeah. the biomass, the charcoal, which uh, which seems to be the main source of uh, energy for cooking in in the areas which we are targeting. Mm. Yep. And um, what kind of resources are available for, like, solar? If someone want, if they wanted to put solar into a place where people were living in camps, how would that work, do you think? Yeah, solar, solar is our number one option yeah. because it can be used for, for both uh, lighting and also for cooking. Uh, on the cooking side, we've got what we call solar cookers, yeah. which, which really... Uh, We'll concentrate uh, solar at one specific four point, mm. which uh, can be utilized as a source of uh, heat. Mm. Uh, we can also use um, uh, improved uh, cookstoves, whereby you uh, make sure that uh, the efficiency of the whole device is, is very high. That um. is, uh, you use minimum amount of uh, biomass or wood fuel to achieve uh, the same result or the same service, which is actually cooking food. 
So if yeah, if we use less, it means the level of degradation or the level of uh, deforestation will also be at uh, at a low level. So yeah. that's, that's that's those are the main two options on on the side of cooking. And then on the lighting, we can also use a. Uh, uh, we are thinking of uh, solar lanterns, which basically just converts uh, sunlight energy mm. into 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 light. In fact, sunlight to electricity, then electricity into light energy. Mm. So yeah, without so, without a generator or anything, just directly in the device, is it? Yes, exactly. That's what we are trying to eliminate those conventional generators, which use uh, petrol and uh, and diesel, which, yeah. which which is really inc- you know increasing the carbon footprint uh, of specific sites which I'll be working with. Yes, because some of these communities are really quite large, aren't they? Is that right? Yeah, some of yeah. them. Yeah, some of them because most of uh, these people, you know, uprooted people running away for many reasons from yeah. their, um, you know, countries. They in some areas they are coming in big numbers, and the governments, you know, mm. are expected to take care of them instead of turning them away. Because mm. some of the governments yeah. of these countries that people are seeking asylum within don't have very many resources themselves. Is that right? Exactly. That's that. That's that. I mentioned. That's where now. UN and uh, its partners come in because we we understand that that's the reality on ground. Most of the governments which are expected to give care to these uh, vulnerable people don't really have you know adequate resources to provide the expected level of care. Mm. And what countries yeah. are you looking at for your part of the project? Um, a couple of countries in Africa, but I think of a priority is going to be um, Burundi, mm. Tanzania. Mm. Um, there's also, I think, Kenya. Mm. Yeah, but they, they they could be more. We are we are just going to have a planning meeting when I when I get there to really map out you know our level of intervention in you know in specific countries. But otherwise, there are a lot of refugee camps in African countries, and mm. also even in, in European countries. Mm. So yeah, so it's still not very specific as of now because normally the approach is case by case. Sometimes you know demands will just arise and we just have to to respond. Yeah, and so the plan yeah. is that it, uh, you'll be working on these, like, identifying these solutions, and then the UNHCR will be um, trying to implement them in their support of of people seeking asylum. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So the starting point is to develop the intervention guides, mm. guides, yeah. sort of uh, a framework which uh, UN, mm. HCR, and its partners can, you know, use, mm. which is some kind of um, a simple, non-technical guideline which any of the communities targeted can really make use of in trying to address this solution. So I will develop the two guidelines for lighting and cooking. Mm. And then try to uh, see how they will be friendly to the targeted users mm. in, in, in one or two countries which we are going to choose. Yep. And yep. and I suppose there's some outcomes that they're expecting. You said that safety was one of them. Are there some other outcomes that they're hoping for? Uh, yeah, because the, 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 the outcome will, will come in choice on the protection side yeah. where we are talking about... Uh, the security and the safety in mm. in refugee camps, and then the the second one is generally just on the uh, environment and um, mm. carbon footprint for specific sites, because it's it is it's 
something which you know UN really does a lot to make sure that it's taking measuring mm. its carbon footprint at each and every camp, and they, it's, it's in their interest to make sure that they are doing whatever they can do to reduce the carbon footprint for each and every specific site. Yeah, absolutely. And so, do you think that any of these solutions would have applications in other places, in um, other countries? Yeah, of yeah. course, of course. Yeah, they 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 they, they have uh, you know um, applications because you know if you look at renewable energy mm. solutions, they are really at the exposure of all of us worldwide. Mm. Solar everywhere, and we're not using, utilizing it. There is wind mm. everywhere, and we're not maximizing on it. In some areas, there is also even hydro potential where we've got mm. perennial rivers or even big dams which can be used to generate electricity yeah. i mean it's the options are so plenty mm. as much as we are crying about climate change global warming we have got plenty of options which we can really maximize on so it's upon you know specific countries to really mm. decide what they have to do yes it's good yeah. that the un is is looking at this in this area and and that there might be ways that other countries can do the same thing i suppose exactly exactly and so yeah. I'm just probably um, one of our last questions then is, is uh, I'm just interested in how you got involved in this and your background as an energy engineer. Oh, yeah, exactly. So, so I've, I've, I've really been working a lot with vulnerable people uh, mm. in, in, in Southern Africa trying to address their, their, their energy issues. So mm. I started as a research scientist in 2008 mm. uh, at a research centre called SIRDC. Scientific and Research and Development Center, which focuses on Southern Africa. Mm. So my main uh, areas of work there were around uh, energy management, which uh, which involves some kind of energy audit and coming up with uh, solutions to reduce the energy use intensities for all sectors of the economy. Mm. And the other arm was uh, basically looking at uh, addressing the energy needs for uh, marginalized communities like mm. the refugee camps that I'm going to be dealing with uh, right now. So it was right across looking at the cooking side, the mm. lighting side. So I was doing, a, I did a lot of designs of uh, improved cook stoves, lighting solutions for, for such uh, sites. Right. So that's where I was from 2008 to, to 2012. Uh, so in, in 2012, I joined the uh, Action, which... Uh, sort of tries also to work with uh, vulnerable people to mm. address their, their needs. So my role there was also in, uh, in energy. Right. Uh, energy access, where I was also trying to, 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 to come up with solutions for, for vulnerable communities, which, 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 which had uh, specific energy needs to be, to be addressed. So mm. that's right up to 2017. That's when I decided to move to Australia, trying to see. So then I would say the whole of last year, I was just trying to see, you know, all the opportunities available for me here in Australia. Fortunately, yeah. I got a chance with uh, with Quota to help mm. them to develop some kind of their energy strategy to see their space, to see what they can do going forward in, in as far as addressing the energy needs for, for the aging people. Mm, for so that was, the, that was the same time when now I got this offer from uh, from UN. They actually wanted me to start uh, 
last month, but I couldn't because I, I, I still had a running contract with uh, mm. with, uh, with, with Kota. So, mm. I'd say in a nutshell, my, my, my interest is really in addressing the energy needs for vulnerable people. Right. And it's yeah. interesting because there's... Um, I think sometimes people don't realise how much of an issue a lack of energy resources is for people and what a big difference there is between the developed world and the developing world in terms of equity of access to energy. Exactly, yeah, yeah. it's quite interesting. It's, it's actually totally two different worlds. Mm. We, in, in the first world countries, we've got our own kind of problems which are different to the kind of problems you would find in uh, developing countries. Yeah. Uh, for example, in 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 uh, third world countries, the issues are mainly lack of resources, yeah. mainly financial resources to address the, the energy need. Mm. But come here now to a first world, uh, you know, continent like 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 Australia, mm. the issue is not really about uh, access, but is really about the the interest to to engage and uh, maximize on available. Uh, options, but otherwise resources are there, and there are a lot of you know options for people to maximize on. Mm. Yeah, so it's the keenness. This side, I, I, I tend to see there is no really interest to to participate, to to engage, to you know to to get involved in you know adopting the new technologies. The interest is not is is, is not is, is not very high. Yeah, Whereas... but back home in a third world country, it's about. The interest might be there, but the resources would not permit. So right. Yeah. 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 So people want to engage the new technologies, but they don't always have a way to, whereas here we have the potential to, but we're not making that choice. Exactly. Yeah. Government has got a lot of um, incentives, a mm. lot of, uh, you know, programs running, which people should really be maximizing on, but mm. people are not, I'm not, I'm not just taking them up. Yeah. We've we've yeah. been a bit spoiled, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, well, yeah. on that note, we might leave it there, Joseph. Thanks so much for joining us, Joseph Wani, is a consultant yeah. in the energy sector. Yeah, working for the UNHCR, and good luck with your project. Sure, it would be nice to talk to you after the project. Yes, indeed, that would be wonderful. Yeah, thanks, Joseph. Bye. Right. Thanks okay. so much. Cheers. Bye. Yeah, a bit of a pity there. I don't think he's using enough coal, do you? Um, in this thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh Kevin, were let, you concentrating at all? He's, he's, let, he's letting the show down. <laughs> um, we got on the line Richie Mercier now. He's, um, he's, he, he's opposed to coal as well. It's a bit of a pity, but never mind. He's with the Australia Institute. He's their climate and energy director. And Richie, in fact, yesterday um, with Zali Stegel, the independent member, uh, launched to the, the annual report that the Institute puts out on climate in Australia and uh, public attitudes to it. Uh, and Richie, it would seem, and we've been saying on this program and many other people have been saying for a long time that the population is light years ahead of the government in terms of attitude to climate, but your figures would indicate that, wouldn't they? Good morning. Yes, they would. Uh, so this, this report has been running since 2007, originally with the Climate Institute heading it up as the Institute took over a couple of years ago when Richie, you're well, dropping out a bit here. Could you just move around or something to see if we can get a bit of... Sure, is that a bit better? That's a lot better, yeah, thanks. Yeah, great. I was just saying that the report's been running since 2007, uh, and so we've got about 12 years now of, of, of data to draw on, 
The most interesting thing in this one is that concern levels are quite high, and within that concern level is the felt impact of climate change. So more and more people are noting that climate change is resulting in more bushfires, more droughts, more floods, uh, more extreme heat, and those, those impacts are happening now, not for the future. And that's what's driving this, these questions around whether governments at all levels are doing enough. And when you dig down into the different sectors and the different government levers available, you find that, that oftentimes people are dissatisfied with that level of action. Yeah, and, and you know, figures like 81% of people concerned, that's, that's a very high, high figure. Yeah, and, that's, and that's, that's specifically about droughts and floods leading to crop production lows and, and food supply issues. And there's no wonder, I think the Bureau of Meteorology just came out earlier this year and said that the current drought is the most severe in 120 years. So these things are just compounding. You know, we've got bushfires now just out of winter with bushfires in winter last year. We had a record-breaking hot summer. So these things are adding up, and people are now questioning whether the government, particularly the federal government, is doing enough to address the cause, which is greenhouse gas emissions. And if you look at the quarterly data that comes out, from the Department of Environment, it shows emissions have been increasing ever since the federal government scrapped the carbon price. And so with, without these kind of policies, without a climate and energy policy that's effective, you're going to continue to see an increase in the cause, at least Australia's contribution, uh, and that's going to flow on. And that's just the domestic emissions, right? I mean, we released a report about a month ago that showed that Australia is the third largest exporter of carbon pollution through its coal, through its LNG. So if you add up the fact that Australia is the 14th largest polluter in the world of 195 countries, and you add to that that Australia is the third largest exporter of fossil fuel emissions, then Australia has a quite a large role in contributing to the climate crisis and it's doing very little to address it. That's counter to what people like Terry McCran, the um, Murdoch so-called financial expert talks about. He says, whatever we do, we're so insignificant, it doesn't matter. Therefore, why destroy the economy for the sake of a very minimal impact on the world climate? You're saying that isn't so. No, it's quite quite a convenient response. Uh, you know, why are we sending you know, warships to Iran to protect the Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz? What's one warship going to do when you have you know, a huge insurgency that could possibly happen? Mm. Why, why should we stop people from throwing trash on the road when they're just one person? I mean, these things mm. add up. They're accumulative. And, Australia, you know, and to write off Australia um, right now is really just a question of self-interest. Um, but Australia has a role to play, and it's not playing it right now. How did you? Uh, how did the Australian Institute collect this data? Can you tell us a bit so, about that? Sure. So we, um, so the, the the data was came from interviews with 1,960 people right across the country. Um, we hired um, YouGov Galaxy to run the survey, and they've been running it for a while now. And we asked pretty much the same questions as well. So we have that continuity, um, that trend that we can see in how people respond. Uh, and we, we have sort of sufficient, uh, a sufficient sample that we can drill down and, and see how different states compare, see how those in capital cities versus those outside compare, see how men and women, how different age generations compare. Um, it's interesting with the climate strike coming up on the 20th of September, you see a lot more from youth and a lot and a much stronger appetite for action 
And I think that will really filter through through occasions like the climate strike. Mm. And any insights about the states, um, considering the outcome of the last election and that the states were quite important in that? Yeah, so while there was some variation, you still saw strong support for transitions like 73% of Queenslanders still want to transition away from coal-fired power stations and towards clean energy. It's not that there's a lot of love for coal as an energy source. There's just an oftentimes an overestimation of the role of coal. One thing that, that, that um, our research found out is that people often overestimate the role of coal in the economy. Mm-hmm. When we ask people how many jobs are there in coal mining, how many Australians do you think are actually working in coal mining, they got the number wrong by a factor of 23. Mm-hmm. Um, when we asked how many, yeah, what's the contribution of coal mining to the Australian economy, they got that wrong. They thought it was six times bigger than what it actually is. So coal has this oversized, this shadow that it casts over our ability to move forward to take the kind of climate action that we need if we're going to take this climate crisis seriously. So part of the work that we're trying to do at the Institute is to fill that gap, to present information, to be more accurate about actually these are the coal mining jobs that are available. We did this again with Dani when Adani was saying, oh, the mine that we're going to open up is going to bring 15,000 jobs in. And then when it was taken to court, their economists said, OK, it's more like 1,500. Mm. And then when the size of the mine was reduced, it ended up being you know, only 100 ongoing jobs, most likely. So it's about pressing the real information about the role of these things playing the economy and the power that Australia has to actually address rising emissions and prepare for these climate impacts. Yeah, that, that high figure of people wanting coal phased out, uh, I, I presume that's something that's increasing by the year as your survey goes on, is it? It does, it does. I think it, particularly because um, more governments are willing to point out that, yes, coal-fired power stations are breaking down and sometimes are responsible for the high prices that, that, we're, that, that then flow on to customers. And we saw this uh, last summer, when two out of the three brown coal-fired power stations in Latrobe broke down, um, the the um, energy minister um, was you know, savvy enough to point out, well, look, this is the fault of these old coal-fired power stations. They break down more often in extreme heat, and climate change will result in, in, in more extreme heat episodes. Mm-hmm. And so really, if we want to both address the unreliability, but also... Um, reduce emissions, then we need to switch to renewables. And it just so happens now as well that renewable energy is the cheapest form of new generation that you can put on the grid, according to a report by the CSIRO and the energy market operator called GenCost last year. So renewables are the cheapest form of new generation. They improve the reliability of the grid and they reduce emissions from our most polluting sector. Mm, but um, part of the big issue with renewables is the lack of certainty in terms of government resources, infrastructure and, and um, policy. Is that right? Mm. Yeah. So, so the real bottleneck soon will be the grid itself and mm. the fact that, that it's not um, up to scratch. It's not the grid that we want for the future energy system that we need. Mm. And so that, that work on the transmission lines, on on building that kind of backup storage, that's going to take a fair bit of time to happen, and that's what might slow down the renewable energy that's coming online. The second thing as well is that, um, is, is that, uh, is that the federal renewable energy target um, has just finished. 
So mm. it's been fully subscribed, and the federal government doesn't want to continue the renewable energy target. The federal government seems to be quite happy to you know, have one policy position on renewables and another for everyone else. So it will say, oh, well, renewables are cost-competitive now. They don't need any more support. Um, but at the same time, you know, gas and coal have been around for decades, and yet the government has a program called the Underwriting New Generation Investment to mm. back in new coal and new gas. So it's happy to subsidise fossil fuel power, but not renewables, apparently because renewables can stand up by themselves and fossil fuels can't. And there's just this perversity, this, this lack of consistency in the federal government policy um, that is the real issue. And without an overarching climate and energy policy that brings climate change and energy together, you're going to continue to see this kind of more ad hoc or favoritism that just will put us on the wrong track. Yeah, just in terms of those figures again, if you break it down into age groups, I would assume that younger people are particularly concerned about their future as far as climate's concerned. Yes, they are, yep. And uh, the, there's a big UN Climate Action Summit that the Secretary-General is hosting on the mm. 23rd of September. Um, there's a lot more appetite from youth. I think 68% of youth want the government to bring forward new pledges, more action to meet the Paris Agreement goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. I mean, the world's not on track. Australia doesn't have a target to align with the Paris Agreement goal. And so 68% of youth want you know, more action in line with that, and, and only 40, 48% of those over 55, just to give you an example of the kind mm. of divide that we're seeing. Yeah. And, and since the last election, of course, Labor seems to have gone to water, um, if that be the word, um, on the whole thing. Like Penny Wong came out a couple of weeks ago and said she would have done exactly what Morrison did at the Pacific Forum and not supported the coal phasing out. So we're looking at a situation following the election where Labor mightn't come up with much of a better policy. Well, um, so I think, so. yes, when it comes to coal mining, Labor and the Liberal Party are quite similar in their position right now. Um, but you know, in terms of what the Pacific were asking for, the Pacific Island Forum, they're asking for four things. One, for Australia to do more to meet its current target. Two, for Australia to increase its target. Three, for Australia to get rid of these dodgy credits that had accumulated through the Kyoto Protocol, the Paris Agreement. Mm predecessor, and they're quite controversial, these credits. There's a large amount, and if Australia uses them, it pretty much gives them a free pass to cut the target in half. And then fourth, it, you know, they wanted um, they wanted no new coal mines. So what, what Labor was saying is we can do the first three. We'll do more in terms, of, in terms of reducing emissions. We'll increase our target. We'll get rid of these dodgy Kyoto credits that every other OECD country says is not in the spirit of the Paris Agreement. But we, but we probably won't, won't do number four. So what we're doing is we're obviously saying, well, if you're serious about the climate crisis, you need to address both exports as well as our domestic emissions. But it is important to also do the first three, particularly these dodgy Kyoto credits. And I'll be going to New York in two weeks. The, the plan is to talk to a number of other countries about how they could close this loophole in the UN climate negotiations so that Australia couldn't use this nor could other countries that want to exploit these holes in the system. Um, because if you add it up, if you add up how many credits Australia has through the Kyoto Protocol, um, through this carryover, uh, then it's equivalent to 
eight times the fossil fuel emissions of every other Pacific Island country, including New Zealand. Mm. So it's a, it's a huge amount. Mm. And so it's, it's important we, we attack it from all ends. Um, Labor's you know, policies are not as ambitious as we want. It's not as, as ambitious as we need, um, especially since, you know, just this morning, John Hewson was on Radio National calling for a climate emergency mm. at the federal level. Like, that's the kind of leadership that, you, that we want from, from, from the major parties. But, you know, there's still a number of fronts that we need to work off. Yeah, we're talking to Richie Mertzi and the um, Australia Institute's Climate and Energy Director. You raised that point, Richie, about um, getting worse. We started out with the you know increased weather and floods and, and fire, etc. Um, it does seem that that's almost happening exponentially now. So some of the figures that people talked about in recent years might be becoming more urgent. That maybe you know maybe it's what well, it looks like it's happening even faster than people have been predicting. Yeah, that's right. It's definitely, it's definitely how people are, are taking that level of concern. For the first time ever, we had the majority of Australians saying that, that climate change is melting the polar ice caps right now. That is happening. It's not something for the future. It was always this kind of um, worry, like it was a big part of the inconvenient truth that Al Gore released in 2007 about sea level rise. But you know, the, the ice caps are melting now. Greenland is having massive thawing. So these are concerns that are driving that interest for more. It's just a matter of translating that into the politics so we can get the outcomes we need. And that's, that's the real issue. But hopefully more of these opportunities, like the UN Climate Action Summit, like the climate strike, um, like declaring a climate emergency, I think there's over like 40 local councils, including the ACT, that have declared a climate emergency. More of that kind of action um, more of the stuff that Extinction Rebellion is doing, um, it's mm. just pushing the envelope and, and and hopefully that will translate into the politics. And the other thing that I wonder about, we've had people on the show before who've talked about um, countries where there aren't grids or even parts of countries where there aren't electricity grids and... Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, you t- mentioned before about how that's one of the major issues with renewables is the lack of investment by government in a grid that's suitable for our needs, for our energy mm-hmm. needs. Mm-hmm. Um, what is, I don't know whether you can answer this, but what is the situation with the possibility of people being off-grid, so people having their own solar water, um, solar heating, um, uh, batteries in their own you know, spaces? There's a lot of planning regulations, but... Mm. Is that a possibility in the future? Yeah, it is a possibility, um, you know, and it will definitely work for some, particularly those in remote locations. Yeah. Um, you know, you couldn't see why it couldn't happen, sort of, you know, especially yeah, especially in places like in the NT. Um, but I guess the majority of our emissions, the majority of our electricity demand, is still relatively. Um, relatively centralised mm. in the large urban kind of areas. Um, and so until we find a way to transition that... And I mean, the other issue is that, obviously, is that renewables are in a variety of different locations, and so it's building those links mm. to connect those renewables up. It's happening, but happening slowly. It's like, you know, ages for a transmission link to be built connecting South Australia to New South Wales. Yeah. Um, if that comes online, it will basically allow a number of of um, potential renewable energy projects, large-scale wind and solar, in 
Western New South Wales and uh, and and the outer reaches of South Australia to connect up, uh, which will which will be great for both sides mm. of the border. But until that happens, you know, things are limited. Because we do see a difference in the way that states respond to their energy needs and the way the federal government responds to the energy that's right. grid. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I mean, this this is coming up as well in the Council of Australian Governments. Um, the, the need for a, a federal plan. Yeah. Um, that's what the National Energy Guarantee was supposed to be last year. It had its faults, mm. but at least it was an attempt to try and bring climate and energy together. Absent that, you're going to see more of this, these ad hoc policies. Um, and it will just mean... And, you know, the Clean Energy Council released a report today showing that there is a slowdown in renewable energy investment. Um, mm. So until this is addressed, we're going to continue to see these kind of problems. Yeah, And on the other side of that, of course, there was also a, a story yesterday in the Financial Review that billions of dollars worth of Australian coal projects are under threat as slumping prices render about 19% of the world's existing seaborne thermal coal supply loss-making. And it goes on to say that the amount, the, the price of coal from, say, Adani, if it ever opens, is going to be much lower than they've been projecting. So it, it looks like a lot of these... Uh, a lot of these projects are, might just fall out because the economy just isn't there. It could. It could. I mean, if you look at the IEA's sustainable development scenario, so part that's you know, relatively well aligned with Paris, it shows that coal flatlines and decreases. Like, there is no huge spike in thermal coal. If anything, um, not opening up Adani, not opening up the Galilee Basin is the best thing we could do for our existing coal mines and our existing coal workers. It would keep the price... You know, high, and it would ensure yeah, it would ensure that those mines continue to operate profitably, and that those jobs remain intact. Um, so, so there's this perversity to it. We also look at how much money Queensland would make as a state from, or how much it does make right now from its coal royalties. Looking at the Queensland Treasury budget papers, and in the next couple of years, Queensland predicts that it'll. It, it will make more money from car registrations and car vehicle duties than it will from coal royalties. Mm. So it's not a huge income source either for the state as well. It's not a huge job maker, and it could potentially threaten jobs and and um, and mines that already exist, uh, like in the Hunter. All right, we're getting to the end of the show. Actually, is there anything else about the report you'd like to say? Because we're just um, we've got to go off here, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, just just one more thing. Look, uh, if, if we're looking for the next thing to ask of the federal government, is to adopt a long-term target of net zero emissions by 2050. Every state has one. The federal government doesn't. It's about time the federal government is willing to orient our economy uh, and direct it towards the path we need to take if we're actually going to comply with Paris. Yeah, well, yeah. good luck with that. Yeah, <laughs> with Angus Taylor and Morrison and company, yeah. but uh, all the best. Let's hope it gets there because it is, it is a serious problem. But look, thanks for your time this morning, Richie. My and, pleasure. Uh, and good luck with it all. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye. Richie Mertzi in there, who's the, as we said, he's the Climate and Energy Director at the Australia Institute. And um, that report um, that report does prove what we've always been saying, actually, that people, you know, people on the ground are so yeah. concerned, and yet we've got government, or particularly the federal government, that uh, exactly. has its head in the sand, so and to speak. Um, it's, it's, it's insecurity and chaos on both fronts, like both on yeah. an economic front in terms of like what the energy industry and renewables industry can rely on in terms of who's going to invest in something when the goalposts are changing every other yeah. year and every every yeah. time a government changes that's or right. a leader changes. We need and, policy, that's what we And need. then the climate chaos as well. So We need good policy. And uh, he mentioned about the coal exports, but we didn't get onto it, but also our our LNG, our liquefied natural gas 
uh, exports are also making a major contribution to the world problem. I mean, so, yeah. these reports are, this is why they're important, because they give us a framework for what we need to ask of a government and then keep pushing for it because yep. we have seen like with ICAC that the crossbench and that the the pressure of the crossbench caused Labor to, to to shift their position and then the Liberals did it the coalition yeah. did as well so yeah. it can happen yep okay yeah. that's it all right see you next yeah. week red alert numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty.